Father, we come before you and we, figuratively speaking, bow down at your feet. We call upon you for your grace and your mercy, specifically for those people who are in the ravaged areas of Hurricane Harvey and the flooding. And we know some places have not yet crested, and we ask, Lord, that you would be gracious to those who are suffering under the burden of losing their homes and their possessions, and and empower us, Lord, to do what we can for them. But until we are able to go back there according to your will, we would ask for your blessing upon your word that it would just take root deep within us that our understanding would increase so that when we go to places like Texas or Louisiana or Mississippi or New Jersey, that we're able to be witnesses of you because you have given us this knowledge and insight. Prepare us for these things, Lord, we ask, and help us to be submissive to your spirit in these areas. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off in Hebrews chapter 8, and we were talking about Jesus Christ being the high priest and how there's a better high priest than the Old Testament Levitical standard. And I gave you the examples of Melchizedek as compared to Jesus Christ. And there's a better sanctuary that is set up in heaven, which we'll get to in here, and a better covenant, the old covenant. And we have to keep in mind always in the book of Hebrews that he's speaking to the Hebrews that are under the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant. And back in, I'm just going to back up a little bit here, verse 8 of the previous chapter. It says, But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So he has this new covenant. And he goes on to say, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them them on their hearts i will be their god and they will be my people and of course this is a quote that i read last week out of jeremiah 31 no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying know the lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest for i will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more now this is specifically a promise for the hebrew nation but it is also specifically a promise for us He is going to put his knowledge within us. If there are characteristics about the Lord that we don't know or never grab hold of here, we will know when we get to heaven and he brings to fruition the salvation that he promised us. In verse 13, he says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now, everyone will know the Lord more fully than we do now. Everyone is forgiven who is in heaven, and sin will be a thing of the past. We won't even be tempted to sin. We won't even have that nature anymore. And that's hard to imagine, but we are going to have to have a new body for that. And that's why God said that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So whether we die previous to the rapture or we go in the rapture as the church of jesus christ our bodies will be changed once we're resurrected 
He's going to somehow reconfigure our bodies again. All those who have believed in him, they will get a brand new body and he will bring them to where he is. And also we're going to get a new name and that name will be known to the individual only. Not everybody will know that name, but we will know each other's name. And I don't think we're going to be tempted to say, so what's your name? You're not going to have to do, you know, everybody's going to have the same relationship with Jesus Christ. And what we learn here, how we grow here, how we serve here, I believe, is predetermining what that name might be. Uh, For instance, if you have been faithful in the face of suffering, in the face of adversity, your name might be faithful. You know, uh, there's this book called Pilgrim's Progress, and one of the characters' names in that, written by John Bunyan, one of the characters' names in that is Faithful. There is Christian and there is Faithful. So we will end up getting some type of name. Now, your name right now has some type of meaning behind it. Like, for instance, um, if you've heard the name Mara, Mara means bitter. And, and Mary is either bitter or contentious you know she's argumentative that type of thing and you think that oh mary's such a wonderful name it, it and usually they would wait a little bit to give a name to a child after they were first born usually if it was a son maybe they would wait to the eighth day after the circumcision but the name would be ascribed a little bit later it wouldn't necessarily come right away and so if you were to rename your children today what would their names be? Or if your name was to be different today to reflect more of your character, what would your name be? Like my name, Bill, and that is my name. My father did not name me William. He was pretty stubborn and determined. He goes, if I'm going to call him Bill, I'm going to name him Bill. Well, it comes Bill from William. William is the derivative. uh, Bill is the derivative of William, and William means protector. And I have this streak in me that I want to protect and pounce and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I have to be careful about that. But you guys know what your character is like. What if it's uh, Doubting Thomas? You doubt. Is your name going to be named Doubter? I don't think so. I think it's going to be a good name when you get to heaven. But it just depends on what you do here. And so God really wants you to be dependent on him, to fulfill what he has for you in this life, to live up to your name, so to speak. Now let's go on. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In the first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold cover ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded in the gold, uh, excuse me, the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover but we cannot discuss these things in detail now and it seems the most likely view that the altar was described in a spatial sense remember i talked to you about this uh, last week that that altar of incense was moved behind the curtain and you can also look at it like this that i didn't tell you about last week those prayers of the saints which is the incense on the altar in front of the curtain inside the holy of holies 
those were the prayers of the saints. Now, a lot of those prayers would have been intercessory type prayers. Well, who is our intercessor now? It is Jesus Christ. And where is he? He is in heaven, in the holy of holies, in the mercy seat. So it's like he has taken on that responsibility where that altar of incense has gone from outside the curtain to inside the curtain because he is the one that intercedes for us. According to scripture, it says that. So if we are weak, he intercedes for us to the Father. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is said to do that as well. He makes intercession for us. So we have this tabernacle. And if you have a chance to, you should Google that when you get home and look at the tabernacle in the Valley of Timnah that is set up even today. You can go there. It's a, almost a perfect mock-up of what the temple, the, the tabernacle was like back then. And I told you last week, the outer court was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and a seven and a half foot fence, which was actually just curtains going along there. And then the tent of the tabernacle was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. As I told you last week, this room is 40 feet long. It's 40 by 40. And you have an area of about 15 by 15, which is just about the stage up here. And so that would be the Holy of Holies. And it's 15 feet wide. So if you imagine the width of the stage here, just going straight back, that is where God dwelt. He dwelt in a tent. And that was where he chose to take up his sanctuary, so to speak. Then, of course, the outer court, you had the bronze altar and then you had the laver in which the people would wash and inside the menorah the lampstand and the bread of the presence and all that is meant to represent jesus christ even the sea cow hides or whatever was on the outside badger skins or whatever they were that were on the outside reflected christ that he was nothing much to look at and jesus is the light of the world you had the lamp inside of the tabernacle and you had the table of showbread and jesus is the bread of life you know and we are going to receive communion today so even back then everything was meant to point to jesus christ and he washes us and makes us clean white as snow and before we can approach god we have to be clean and you have the the altar and you have the laver that which is out there with the water so the priest could wash but there had to be a sacrifice first before you would be clean, before you could go in and see the light of the world and the bread of life. And so we see how all that is just knit together. And by the way, one of the things with the tabernacle that was set up in the wilderness, you had the tribes and they were designated where they were supposed to be. And the door of the the tabernacle, which is a curtain, it faced east. Now, this is going to be a little difficult to do, but I want you to get this in your mind's eye. These tribes were divided up. Now, it's going to the east. Now, to the east, which is this way, to the east of the tribes, there were 208,400 people that would be to the east. Now, imagine if this was the tabernacle, you know, about 15 feet wide, 45 feet long, and then going this way, you had 200 and 8,400 people in that direction, all right? Now, if you went to the west, you have 115,600. Which side is longer? To the east. Which side is shorter? To the west. Now, to the south and to the north, 160,050 to the south and 163,800 
to the north. Are you getting this picture? 208,000 that way, 115,000 this way, and about 160,000 each way. What does that look like in your mind's eye? It looks like a cross. If you, if you had a drone and you went up in the air and you could look down on the tabernacle facing directly east, it is in the shape of a cross. Now, how wide were those tribes set up? I don't know, but it, it had to be pretty wide to accommodate 208,000. But it went that way. If you were of one of the tribes that was supposed to be in the east, you went that way. And I'm sure there was a line. So how big did the area have to be? It had to be pretty big. And God led them in the wilderness. So even back then, the tabernacle and the tribes point to the body of Christ who is on the cross. You know, the, the bride of Christ, we are one with him. The symbolism there is just replete. It's all through scripture. It's, the word would be ubiquitous. It's all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation. God's plan here, but it was just hidden from the Jews. They couldn't see it. Thus, or hence, the book of Hebrews. The author saying, look, all this stuff is there. God wanted to point this out to the Hebrews so that they would later understand. They'd make the connections. they say, oh, I get it now. I get what God has done. And we're Johnny-come-latelys. And so we don't quite identify with the Jews, but we can see how God wanted the Jews to identify with Jesus Christ in the new covenant. And the tabernacle was used for worship. You had sin offerings. You had burnt offerings, which was an offering, a consecration. The, the sin offering was an animal was offered and its blood was spilled and sprinkled on the altar. And then you had a peace offering or an offering of communion. And so these sacrifices are supposed to be made in order, especially for the high priest to go in the Holy of Holies once a year. And so we see how all this is tied together. Now going on in verse 6. One more side note. The cost of the tabernacle back then, it was very expensive, but you had one to three million people who were chipping in all the silver and the gold and the fine linen and everything. But if you made it today, it wouldn't even rise to the cost of some houses in Hollywood, but it would be about $10 million with all the gold and the silver that would be in there because everything was overlaid with gold or silver or bronze. Going on in verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. And so the priests would go in and they'd pour oil in the lampstand. They would replace the bread. There would be two stacks of six How many is that? Twelve, which represented the twelve tribes of Israel. What do you have? The twelve tribes of Israel in the New Testament? You have the twelve apostles. Even though there are more than twelve in the New Testament, God has designated that twelve will be those who help judge and rule in heaven. Verse 7 says, But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. So if you recognize this tabernacle, there was only one light source in there, and it was the lamp. And when you went into the Holy of Holies, the high priest would carry the censer. And that area, 15 by 15, would fill up full of smoke. And if you've ever heard of the term, the Shekinah glory of God, it was meant to overshadow the mercy seat of God where you can't see. It's like God dwells in this smoke. Or Remember on Mount um, 
Sinai, when he came down, there were clouds, there was smoke. And if you look at that area uh, today over there, it is torched on top. And it is in Saudi Arabia. It's not in the Sinai Peninsula. And so in that area, they've taken satellite photos and it's completely dark. So God, he like dwells in this smoke area or this Shekinah glory or this cloud. And sometimes it happened in the tabernacle in the temple. You couldn't even go in there because this cloud would overcome. So the priest goes in there and he has a censer full of the incense and he's waving it around and he's sprinkling the blood that is on there of the goat and the bull, the Yom Kippur. Uh, is when that would take place. And so he was the only one that was allowed to go inside. So who had access to God? Nobody but the high priest. He was the only one that could go in there. The other priest could be outside the curtain and they would rotate through the Levites. They would have their time where they'd come in and they'd fill up the oil and they would replace the bread and they'd probably dust things and maybe say a few prayers and, and, and work on the altar of incense there. But that's what they would do. But only one person had access to the Holy of Holies and that was the high priest. Who has access to heaven? Only Jesus Christ. He's the one that went there and interceded for us. Again, you have that mirror of what is supposed to be taking place. And that priest had to go through a a ritual. He had to make offering for his own sin and also the sins of the people, according to Leviticus 18. He had to wash his hands and his feet. He must carry into the holy place the incense and hide the cover as it burns and sprinkle in front of the mercy seat seven times the blood that I just talked about. Then he had to do the same for both the bullock and the goat, as I just said. And so that was the job of the high priest. He had to offer blood in order to make atonement on Yom Kippur, the high holy day in all of Israel. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. There are only, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So this is God's new order. This isn't the Illuminati. This is what God is setting up to be the new order for the future. The downside of the old covenant, and there were several downsides. The downside is never clear or your conscience would never be clear. If you committed a sin, you would walk around with guilt and you'd have this guilt just weighing on you. And you go, how can I get out from under this guilt? You can't get out from under the guilt. But God looks at you as one who is approved because of the sin offering that you have offered through the priest. We understand that? And so now we can have our guilt cleansed. And you say, well, how easy is that? Sometimes we don't feel forgiven. We don't feel without guilt. Did God ever promise that forgiveness that was extended to us would come with a feeling he never promised that and so you have to trust his word he doesn't say in scripture and when you confess your sins all your guilt will be taken away well it is taken away but the feeling of the guilt he never says that will be taken away and so you have to convince yourself by the word of God that you are not guilty in it anymore and you have been washed by the blood of the lamb and cleansed from your former sins 
It's kind of like the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When people get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they're waiting to have some type of emotional rush, maybe speak in tongues or prophesy or something like that. And if it doesn't happen, they go, I didn't feel anything. I'm not happy. I'm not sad. I didn't get a gift. I mean, what's going on? You know, how come this isn't happening? And there are churches that you go to and they say, well, if you're not speaking in tongues, you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is simply the Holy Spirit empowering us to be his witnesses, to be martyrs for the faith, so to speak. Not, well, it can be literal, but more often than not, it's just metaphorical. But people are waiting for this feeling. Or sometimes they go to a church and I felt the presence of God. Well, what happens if you don't feel the presence of God? Well, God's obviously not in the place. Really? Maybe it's just you, you know? And people get that mixed up. And, and a lot of times the people who go for the feeling, they're shallow theologically. They don't understand God's word. They just want the experience and they're looking for the next experience. And the experiences are great and they're wonderful. But if we're always just looking for the experience, we're missing it. God usually has a word for us. When you read the Bible, you can get a couple of different emotions. You can go, wow, that is just awesome. And a couple of times you can go through it and go, oh, that is awesome. Oh, man, God is just speaking to me. I do not feel good right now because I'm reading and I have my sin exposed to me. And that's what the scripture does. And, and if you're always reading the scripture to feel good, to be healthy, to be wealthy and wise and all of that stuff, ain't going to happen because God tells us that sometimes we're chosen for adversity. Sometimes we're going to suffer and then we're going to die. Not just suffer, but then we're going to die because of the suffering. And you read that and you go, I'm so happy. Why, why are you so? No, I feel bad when I read that kind of stuff in there. But see, all of this, it, in the Old Testament, your conscience wasn't able to be cleared. In the New Testament, God, by the action of the Holy Spirit, will clear our conscience. We get a clean slate, and we have to walk in that. Now, going on, the sacrifices year after year was an ongoing effort. Hey, we got to go down to Jerusalem, and we got to bring these oxen, you know, and we got to make these sacrifices, and it's a long walk, I tell you. And we only have two donkeys to ride on, and we have to have a cart, you know. And so they do all of that, and going three times a year down to Jerusalem. What an onerous burden. It's like, for us, we have to make the trek to Fresno three times a year. Fresno we're going to Fresno and you'd go to Fresno three times a year you know if you're coming up from the south or from the north if you're up in the northern California it's all treesy and it's wonderful but you got to make this trek down to Fresno where it's hot and it's not nice and that's what the Jews had to do you know so all these regulations regulations that really for all intents and purposes seemed unending what can you eat? Well, I don't know. I can have pickles that are kosher, but I can't have any lobster or shrimp or anything like that. You know, no shellfish, no abalone. You know, that's out. And you can't have any rabbit. Rabbit is not good. It chews the cud, but it doesn't split the hoof. You can't have horse because a horse, you know, it chews the cud, but it doesn't have a split hoof. But you can have wildebeest because wildebeest, you know, it 
choose the cud, then it has a split hoof, so you can have that. And, and so you go through all this, well, what can I have to eat, Mommy? Can I have a popcorn cake? Well, yeah, you can have a popcorn cake. That's okay. And so you're always worried, are you going to eat the right thing? And you have to go through this ritual. And then the priest added to that, you got to wash your hands just right. They added on top of what the scripture had to say. They, verse, uh, number four, not possible for everyone to have equal access to God. I have the same access to God as the priest in the Old Testament who went into the Holy of Holies. You have the same access to God. And it says you can enter the Holy of Holies boldly. You can walk in there. You're a kid of the king, right? If I have a, a little, I have a little grandson. His name is Drank. He's a little terror. But if he came running in here, I wouldn't say, thou should stop us right there. You know, I would tell him, come on, buddy. Okay, we need to go sit down. He, he could walk right up to me with no fear. That's how we're supposed to enter into the Holy of Holies the same way. In the Old Testament, you couldn't do that. You couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. If you did, judgment, you would die unless you were the high priest and you did it correctly. If you didn't do it correctly, as the high priest, you would die too. It was very important to God that all of these things be carried out perfectly. Access to God was only available while the tabernacle was standing. Uh, Closed. The tabernacle's all sealed up. No offering for sin can be made. But once the tabernacle was put up, okay, the offerings can resume. It's not like that for us. We never knock on heaven's door and get a response. I'm sorry, you have called after hours. God is not in right now. We never get that type of thing going on. God is always there. He's always listening. He wants to hear our prayers and he loves us. And that's why he does all of this. So going on, verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. I told you last week, I don't know exactly how he did that, but he took his own blood and presented it up there, a propitiation for our sins. He appeased God's justice. And so therefore, We have gone beyond justice to mercy, which is more important. Having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. So in the Old Testament, they would wash everything, sanctify the outside, put blood on it. That would cleanse it. Everything on the outside would be clean, but nothing on the inside was clean. And the conscience was defiled so to speak it was always in a bad state having this guilt that was there how much more then verse 14 will the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to god he's the spotless lamb that takes away the sin of the world cleanse our consciousness our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living god For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So see, he was taking this old covenant and he's explaining it to the Jews and he's telling them, look, new high priest, new temple, new tabernacle, so to speak, 
new forgiveness mode. You don't have to do this over and over. Which is better? Would you like to go to Fresno three times a year? Or would you just like to worship God where you are because you can enter the throne room through prayer? And he's appeasing or appealing to them on the basis of what Christ has done. It's not like the old covenant that is there. Now, guilt, you know, this idea of taking away guilt, Christ dealt with the guilt. By not trusting God, it is a sign that we cannot let go of guilt. Or if we cannot let go of guilt, it is a sign that we don't trust God. So if you're carrying this guilt for something you have done, and by the way, if you start rewinding the tape of your life, you will get to a point where it's palm in the forehead. What was I thinking when I did that? And you have this sense of guilt. All you have to say is, God has forgiven me for that. And I was completely wrong. And he has cleansed me of that. And there is none righteous, no, not one. I can guarantee you this, that if God was to play a videotape, remember video? We had videotape. Remember that? When, if he played a videotape of each of our lives, we would all hang our, our heads in sorrow and we would hardly be able to recover because of the embarrassment and the shame. That's how all of us are. And so when someone says, well, I'm good, I serve God. No, <laughs> Sorry, you're not. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that is the grace of God. The grace of God just covers all of that. And a guilty conscience will lead to abnormal behavior. People do things because of guilt. And we should never be motivated because of guilt. You know, I, I could do that as a pastor. I could send you on a guilt trip, have bags ready for you in the foyer. And as you leave, grab your bag because you're going on a guilt trip and I'm not supposed to do that my job is to make sure I just teach and preach God's word and as it has an effect on you you recognize the sin by the way I get it first I go okay that's okay God please forgive me oh okay now I'm going to tell it to the people and he's forgiven me right and so I give it to you guys and I say you know if we need to repent of this or turn from that we understand and then he forgives us he's faithful and just to do so and we go on our merry way guiltless if we keep that guilt with us we end up doing stupid things things that are outside the will of god and we want to make sure we don't do that and i cannot be relieved of that sense of guilt until a punishment has been brought forth and people think that they have to go through penance that they have to pay or atone for their own sins and it changes the behavior of the individual and it might be flippant to say god forgives me well you have to say but i did wrong and i need to turn from that if you just simply go with the attitude god forgives me and everything's good well did you deal with the sin well if you dealt with the sin praise the lord God forgives you and just keep on going. But we're supposed to stop, deal with the sin, and the punishment that is due us, Christ bore for us. And so that's how we're supposed to look at it. And that's the grace of God. I mean, how wonderful is that? That God just comes along and says, I forgive you because you have sought forgiveness in all humility. And so we need to make sure that we have confessed our sins. Otherwise, 
it breaks fellowship with God. And if you don't feel like you've been cleansed, again, I want to remind you, God never tells us that we would have a feeling, but we are simply to operate on the understanding that he cleanses our consciousness, our consciences. Verse 16, in the case of a will referring to a document like after we die, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. He's saying up in heaven that Christ would have had to take his blood and cleanse everything, so to speak. Not that it would be unclean, but he's, he's showing what would happen in heaven to get us our forgiveness of sins. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. He interceded for us, and that's where we get the forgiveness of sins. And if you look back at some of the Old Testament covenants, you know, the Mosaic covenant, it just explained to us there was a sacrifice for that. The Abrahamic covenant, there was a sacrifice. Remember, he was going to take up Isaac, his only son, and he was going to sacrifice him, and he didn't. And he said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And he did. And there was a, a ram that was caught in a thicket there, and he took the ram. And God made a promise to him that it is through Isaac that his generations to come would be reconciled that there would actually be a messiah and that promise was given all the way back inside of the book of genesis and so from the beginning we have been told these things and they're being brought to fruition verse 25 now did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest every single year going in there the way the high priest entered the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own then christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world how many times you can't count them how many people are there how many sins have they committed i mean, it's innumerable you can't count how many times christ would have had to have died if he was like the other Old Testament priests and under the Old Testament covenant. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So Jesus just had to die once because his blood was perfect. It was able to make an atonement. It was able to be the sacrifice for the sins of the entire world and every sin that had ever been committed because he went to the perfect tabernacle, which was in heaven. And that why, that's why it was important that the earthly tabernacle had those same dimensions and the same designs and so just as christ died once we are destined to die once now you can underline this verse and you can star it 
And you can draw little smiley faces by it because there is no reincarnation. Could you imagine doing this over and over? I get to go back. Yeah. What are you going back as this time? A chihuahua. Yeah, that's what I'm going back as this next time because, you know, karma, you could be a cockroach, you could be whatever. God says, nope, one time is all you get. You get one chance. And that's why it's so important that we give the gospel. That's why we tell people. There, you don't know how many people are out there that just think, ah, it's okay, you know, everything's good, I got a good attitude. You know, there's a self-deception. And I even witnessed it this last week. There are people think things that aren't even true and they hold to them like they're gospel. You know, that's a axiom. It's gospel. What's that mean? Well, it's truth. And from the outside looking objectively, you could say, that's not truth at all. If somebody says, well, you know, I believe in reincarnation. Why? Because I want to. Well, at least we've established that. There is no truth in fact. You don't have to come back and do the repeat and Groundhog Day and over and over and over. It just doesn't work that way. It is appointed unto us to live once, die once, and then face judgment. If it comes out the wrong end of the judgment, we die twice. We go to the lake of fire, which is hell, which is Gehenna. And nobody has to go there. God is willing to forgive anybody who will simply come up and say, please forgive me. Now to apply all this. The law was a burdensome yoke. What do you mean by a burdensome yoke? Not the yoke of an egg. It's the yoke of an ox. They used to put a yoke across the neck of an ox, usually across the neck of two oxen. And they would have to pull the plow and be whipped to get them to go. And they would be given feed and they would till up the ground. The law was like that. The law came to the Jews and every Jew, you get a yoke today. And it was put on their neck and they had to work at it. And it was hard. They had to follow the regulations and it didn't even bring salvation. Salvation came by faith. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, it says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So under the new covenant, the yoke is easy. Under the old covenant, the yoke was very hard. The law also was a schoolmaster. In the Greek, it refers to this term schoolmaster as a pedagogos. A pedagogos was somebody who was in charge of raising and educating the children. And they carried a switch. And if you got out of line, they used the switch. And you were not allowed much room. And, you know, you sat down at the desk. I, I remember I had some friends that lived across the street and several around the area. They went to the local Catholic school. And there would be sister so-and-so, sister Martha, sister Mary, whoever it was. And if they got out of line, they would make them put their hands on the desk. Some of you are cringing. And, and they would take the ruler and whack the knuckles is what they would do. These nuns were acting like pedagogos, these schoolmasters they were bringing these kids in line when i went to school even in junior high it wasn't called middle school back then 
they had the ability to spank the students. And the vice principal, he had a paddle that was outside his door. And there were not holes drilled in it, you know, because the air, the resistance and hitting you. But you would get a swift whack across the rear end if you were doing something wrong. And even our kids, we sent them to a Christian school. We had to give them permission to spank our children or we had to show up and do it if they were out of line. Our daughters were angels. They were total angels. Didn't get spanked once for that. You know, and and so that's the way the law was. If you didn't keep the law, whack, you know, it's a -a whack-a-doodle. What's that game that they have? It's wherever it is, the gophers pop up and you're supposed to whack those things. Well, you wouldn't go down. You'd get whacked on the head if you didn't do something right. There was a penalty. That's the Old Testament law. There was a bond containing ordinances that you had to follow through with certain acts. Now, there's a difference between ordinances and sacraments. There are seven sacraments. You know, marriage is one. That's a sacrament. Communion is another. And that's practiced by the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. And they were necessary for salvation that you had to perform the sacraments. But ordinances according to the Protestant tradition, is not. We simply remember what happened in the past. And an ordinance, like we're going to receive communion, it was instituted by Jesus Christ, it was practiced by the apostles, and it's written about in the Gospels and in the rest of Scripture. And so therefore, it's an ordinance that we're supposed to keep. Baptism is another one. It's an ordinance. It is not a sacrament. If you don't get baptized, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It just simply means you're disobedient. It doesn't mean you're not saved. And so God wants us to follow these particular ordinances. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, though, blotting out the handwritten handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. So everything that they had to do, Jesus nailed the ceremonial law to the cross, no longer has to be done. You don't have to bring a little sheep or turtle dove or pigeons into the sanctuary here and we don't sacrifice them. And then there was a wall of partition. The historian Josephus talks about this wall as you walked into the temple court area. And there was a sign that was there that said, no foreigner may pass the barrier and enclosure surrounding this temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will be himself to blame for his resulting death. If you were a Gentile and you tried to go into the temple area, you would be killed. And scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, for he is our peace who has made both one, referring to Jew and Gentile, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself the two one new man, so making peace that he might be reconciled both to God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Now, this is the King James. And so there were two things to draw from this. Both Jew and Gentile, the enmity or the tension was taken away between them, but also between us and God, it was taken away where we have access. And so that's what we learn from the Jews and the Old Testament covenant. It is extremely burdensome. What do we have today? We have the new covenant that we simply confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And we have access to the throne room. We can go directly to God. We have his Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. We don't have to bring sacrifices anymore. We don't have to go to Fresno three times a year. We don't have to do any of that stuff. The problem is we can be slack. 
We can say, oh, it's so good being in Christ. But don't ask me to do anything. And we don't. You know, so I don't want you to go out here with your bag in the foyer. I just want you to be able to say, Jesus, I'll be submissive to you in everything. That's all you have to say. And he goes, good. That's wonderful. I love to hear that. And then he'll use you. And then get ready. They're making new roller coasters, you know, at Magic Mountain. It's better than a roller coaster ride. The Lord will use you. He'll bring you to maturity. He'll fill you with joy. And there will be trials. But he's got your back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for the sacrifices that, or the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made. Father, we can never repay you for that. But as we get ready, as we prepare to receive communion, we would ask, Lord, that you would help us in this practice of this ordinance to reflect on what Jesus, our Messiah and Savior, has done. How he has brought us the ability to have fellowship with you. And so, Lord, we'll trust in you to bring about our sanctification, our glorification, all of those things that you desire to do with us now and in the future. And we'll bless you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.